0: book of and one last Sunday of course we finished the book of Jude and so I was praying about where to go and had the book of Acts on my mind for a while so I thought we'd go to Acts to look at Acts chapter 1 and we'll begin reading from verse 1 this morning so the former treaties have I made Theophilus of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after that he through the holy ghost take given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of god let's open this morning with a word of prayer dear lord and heavenly father we thank you lord for all this wonderful day we thank you lord for the privilege of being in your house lord i pray that this morning as we begin to consider the book of acts i pray that you would undertake that lord you would empower me through the holy spirit give me wisdom and guidance from a high lord i pray that everything i say this morning would be from you that would be your words and that lord you would use the word to speak to our hearts and lives this morning may we be refreshed and and blessed by your word this morning and encouraged through it we pray from this place now, just bless now as we consider your word of prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Now the title that's often given to this book is somewhat misleading. I mean, if you look in most of our English Bibles, it probably has the Acts of the Apostles as the title. Okay, and so the title, the Acts of the Apostles, and it's misleading because you see that title implies that this book is a thorough history of all that the Acts. Sorry, all that the apostles did, all the acts of the apostles. That's what the title implies. When the reality is that this book does not contain the acts of the apostles as a whole. The fact of the matter is that very few of the apostles are mentioned in great detail in the book. And as far as their acts are concerned, it says largely on two of those apostles. And those two apostles are Peter and Paul. Now, these two and their ministry, under the power of the Holy Spirit, is the main focus of the book. And as they minister, the church spreads, of course. So it's a focus on the early church, as Peter and the Apostle Paul minister. So chapters 1 through to 12 focuses on the ministry of Peter. And then chapters 13 through to 28 focuses on the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so really it should be, you know, the acts of those two apostles, or the acts of those apostles under the power of the Holy Spirit, not the acts of all the apostles. We read somewhat of some of the others, but mainly it's concerning those two. And verse 1 here begins with the author informing us that he's already written a previous book to this man, Theophilus. It says in verse 1, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. And so he says the former treaties have I made. In other words, he says I've written to you already. He's read in a previous book to this man, Theophilus, and we know from the book of Luke that Luke's gospel is this other book. So there, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and just read from verse 1 with me if you would. It says, For as much as many taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most assuredly believed among us. Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Okay, and so here we see this man, Theophilus, mentioned again. And so the Gospel of Luke is this other. Book this other treatise that was written to him, and so Luke writes both of these books, and he writes them if you like to go together. Okay, they're a set; it's a two-volume set. The Luke goes with the Book of Acts. You see, in Luke, he writes about what Christ began to do in the Book of Acts. He tells us what Christ can to do through the church under the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, what do we know about this man Luke, the author of these two books? Well, we know from God's word that he was a doctor. I mean, that's one of those questions, isn't it? What was Luke's profession? And we all go, He's a doctor. Okay, and it's Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14 that tells us that. It says, Luke, the beloved phys- physician. Okay, so Paul calls him a doctor. He refers to him as being a physician. And so he was trained. He'd, he'd probably been off somewhere to study and he'd been trained as a physician and he was qualified in this profession. And you know, while Luke was not one of the twelve, disciples he wasn't one of the apostles okay and sometimes we get confused about that because we read matthew mark luke john and we sort of think okay mark and luke are thrown in the rest he's not luke is not one of the 12 he's not one of the apostles you know while he wasn't one of the apostles he evidently was an excellent scholar when you think about the information to us in the book of luke and also in the book of acts he's gathered an awful lot of information to put together under the power of the holy spirit of course but he's gathered all this information and he's put it together in a concise, easy to read format for us. And so Luke was an excellent scholar as well as being a physician. As we were just read in Luke chapter 1, in verse 2, there it says, Even as they delivered them unto us, okay, he's talking about the disciples, those who were eyewitnesses. He says, Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write unto thee in order most excellent theophilus so he writes these things because he had perfect understanding because he'd researched these things he'd learned these things he gathered witness accounts and he put together the gospel and indeed the book of acts and he was there for a lot of the what's contained in the book of acts okay and so he writes these two books and he writes these two books to a man named theophilus we don't know a lot about this particular man. Okay, we're not told um, if he was even a believer. We're not told whether he was saved or not. We know that his Theophilus means friend of God. Okay, that's what his name means. And so we would like to assume that up to his name. Okay, we would like to assume that you know, maybe he got saved and he was indeed a friend of God. Maybe he got saved through reading Luke's gospel and through reading the book of Acts. But we're not told. We don't know for sure whether he ever got saved. We're not even sure exactly who he was. But Luke's salutation in the Gospel of Luke gives us some idea and leads us to believe that he may have been a Roman official. At the end of verse there, he calls him most excellent Theophilus. Okay, he says that he's most excellent Theophilus. Now this is a title that's used in other places in the Word of God, referring to governors. Okay, Roman. Officials turn to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. In Acts chapter 23, verse 26, it says, Claudius Lysias unto the most excellent governor Felix sendeth greeting. Okay, you have the governor Felix, and he's called most excellent. If you turn over also to chapter 26 and verse 25. Chapter 26, verse 25, it says, But he said, I am not mad, most noble, Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. Okay, so you've got here most noble. It's a similar title used in about Festus this time. So we gather from the fact that this title is used by Luke in other places to refer to governors, to high-ranking Roman officials, we gather that more than likely, Theophilus is likely also a governor, okay, or a Roman official of some sort somewhere in some province. We're not told what province he's from, but we just assume he's a high-ranking official. And so it would seem that this Roman official is interested in the things of Christ. He's interested in this this church that's spreading around. And he wants to know more. He wants to know, you know, the things of the church. He wants to know where it came from. He wants to know what what it's all about. And so Luke undertakes the task of writing to him concerning all these things to give this man understanding and if we go back to acts chapter one here at the end of verse one here luke tells us what the purpose of his first book was in verse one here he says the former treaties have i made o theophilus of all that jesus began both to do and teach It speaks so to us that his first gospel first book the gospel of luke was written to declare unto us, unto us sorry, what Christ began to do and teach. Now that little word, began, there is important. You see, he doesn't say he declared all that Christ did and taught. He doesn't say that Christ's work was finished. Okay, That he declared the, the total sum of it, that it was finished. There was no more to be done. He simply says, I declared unto you what Christ began to do. You see, Luke is making clear to us and also to Theophilus here, that Christ's work on earth was finished. You see, if we go to the, the Gospel of Luke then in a minute, but at the very end, the very last chapter, he finishes with Christ ascending back into glory. Okay, So Christ is ascended back into heaven, and as he picks up Acts, he makes sure that Theophilus understands Christ's not finished. Yes, Christ has returned to heaven. He's returned to glory. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, but his work on earth is not finished. The work was going to continue on through the Holy Spirit, through the church. And he's making that clear before he begins the book, that that is what happened in the first book, and now he's continuing on with the story of what Christ has done. And this really is what the book of Acts is all about. The book of Acts is all about the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church. Okay, He's beginning to work in the lives of the believers. And the book of Acts, if you like, bridges the gap between the Gospels and the epistles. Okay? It fills in that massive hole that's between the two. Now, for instance, as I said, this gospel ends with the believers seeing Christ ascend into glory, and then they, as they go to the temple, and they're praying, to, praising God. Go there, Luke 24. <clears throat> Luke chapter 24, and let's see from verse uh, 50. It says, And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was pardoned them and carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were pr- continually in the temple praying and blessing God. Amen. and So Luke ends his gospel by telling us Christ is sent back into glory, and he says the disciples they've gone back to the temple and they're praising God. They're continually in the temple, he says, praising and blessing the Lord. You know John's gospel ends even more abruptly. It ends with Christ and his disciple each okay having a conversation with peter and john about the future the point is if we were to read through the gospel of luke we find them in the temple and we think okay the disciples they're, they've gone back they're praising god in the temple we then read john and we find okay well they were on the beach and then we read romans because there's no acts well look at romans and lo and behold there's christians in rome there's such in rome how did they get to rome how did that happen how did it spread so far and who is this guy paul Who is this man Paul who's writing to the Romans? You know, how did he get, where did he come into the picture? Why is he an apostle? you imagine all the questions you and I would have without the book of Acts? There would be a massive hole. Because Acts gives us all this history, gives us this starting point. It fills in the gaps between the Gospels and the Epistles. So to answer all these questions that we would have with the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit leads Luke to write this book. Okay, this is really why Luke writes this book under the power of the Holy Spirit. He writes it to fill in this piece of history for us. And so chapter 1 here in the book of Acts, as we begin chapter 1 here, chapter 1 overlaps, if you like, with the end of Luke's gospel. Okay, it overlaps a little bit because as we just saw at the end of Luke's gospel, Christ is ascending in glory and the disciples are in the temple praising God. He starts the book of Acts before Christ's ascension. Okay, he goes back to before that. Um, read verse 2 with me until the day in which he was taken up after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion being infallible proofs being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God it keeps going on it says and assembled together with them commanded them they should not depart from Jerusalem but wait for the promise of the father which saith he ye have heard of me And we can keep reading on but the point is this is before christ and he's talking about okay so he takes us back to before the ascension and he fills in the gaps a little bit for us if you like he tells us what christ was doing during this period with his disciples for these 40 days that he was on earth after his resurrection you see there were certain lessons that the disciples had to learn before they began their ministry before they began their new of spreading the gospel Christ had certain things he wanted them to learn. What he was doing during these forty days, Christ was teaching his disciples. You know, during these forty days, Christ would appear, and then he would disappear, and then he would appear somewhere else, a totally different time. He would appear and disappear at random. You know, this is all about preparing the believers for what would come next. He was preparing them to be without him, preparing them to be without Christ as he would ascend back into glory. You know, you and I do not have the Savior present with us today. And the disciples are going to experience that as well. And so Christ was preparing them during these 40 days. So during these 40 days, Christ spent a lot of training his disciples for what lay ahead. And Luke here in his beginning of the book of Acts, he tells us some of these important lessons that Christ told them, that Christ gave to them. Now, due to the length of the introduction this morning, we're only going to look at the first of these this morning. Okay, we're going to look at the first of these important lessons that he gave to his disciples. And the first one is the reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection. Just look with me in verse 3. It says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many fallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You know, Luke begins here, by telling us that during these 40 days, Christ showed himself alive under his disciples. Christ made sure that they understood the reality and reason, the importance of his resurrection before he left them. You see, at first, after Christ rose again, there were those who doubted his resurrection, even among the disciples. Turn over to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, and just read from verse 9. It says, Now when Jesus was risen early the third week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him, and mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive, and that he had been seen of her, believed not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them, as they walked and went into the country and they went and told it unto the residue neither believed they them afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardened heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen Now here in Mark it tells us that on two occasions here at least you know you've got Mary Magdalene she sees Lord Jesus Christ and she goes back with great excitement to tell the disciples and their response is that they believe not and then you have these two that meet him on the road and again they go to the disciples and the disciples refused to believe that lack of faith you see at first they doubted the reality of his resurrection they doubted it was true they doubted it was real knew his body was gone but they didn't believe he was risen again they wanted to see for themselves before they believed you know thomas is another great example you know we all know about thomas poor thomas who gets called doubting thomas all the time Well, all the disciples doubted, not just Thomas. But you know, Thomas, you know, that unless he saw Christ himself, he would not if he wasn't there the first time Christ appeared. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. He wasn't there the first time Christ appeared in the room behind the closed doors. And so he said, you know, unless I see myself, I'm not going to believe. John 20 verse 12. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The others therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of, his na- of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, Thomas here says, he says, Unless I see for myself, unless I touch him, I'm not going to believe. Now we know that when he saw him, that was enough. He didn't need to touch him. But the point is, the disciples at first here, Thomas and all the disciples failed to believe at first. They failed to believe the reality of the resurrection. And you know, we can't really blame them, can we? That would have been our position as well, I'm sure. We would have all been a bit sceptical that Christ had risen from the dead. And so Christ had to make sure that they knew of a certainty that he was alive before he left them. Okay, So during these 40 days, he's making sure that they have proof that he is alive. Why? So that they then can go forth and tell others that Christ is alive. Tell others the message of the gospel. He did this. They would be eyewitnesses to the truth of the resurrection. Now, we don't have the luxury of seeing the resurrection Christ. We don't have that luxury. And so we have to rely upon the eyewitness account of the disciples, the apostles and others. We have to rely upon their account, their witness, that Christ is alive. And so this is what Christ was doing during these 40 days. He was making sure that they knew without a shadow of a doubt he was alive. And Luke tells us here that he gave them infallible proofs. It says in verse 3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. This word rendered infallible proofs here is a Greek word that doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. This is the only time we see this word used. And it speaks about evidence that could not be mistaken. Evidence that could not be mistaken. Christ was showing them of a certainty that he was alive. You know, Luke doesn't elaborate for us exactly what those infallibles were. But you know, when you and I go and read the gospels and we read the passage of scripture, we gather an idea, don't we? What he's referring to. You know, the evidence that Christ gave to his disciples consisted of many things. It consists of him eating and drinking with them. That proved that he wasn't just a spirit. You know, he ate food, real food. He drank with them. He had various conversations with them, one-on-one. He met with them face-to-face at various times over the space of 40 days. He worked miracles. He allowed them to touch him. He showed himself to be the same person he was before he died. All of these things are infallible proofs. And the fact that they're spread out over 40 days means you can't mistake it. It's not as if it was just one mass halluc- you know, a hallucination. okay? It's over the space of 40 days to give them infallible proof. The Gospels record for us no less than 13 separate occasions where Christ appeared to his disciples. And there may have even been more. But there's at least those 13 events where Christ showed himself and proved without a shadow of a doubt he was alive no one could claim disciples were all fooled by an imposter now it's easy for one person to be fooled but for men who spent three years with him to be all be fooled on various different occasions it's not possible no one could claim that they had simply imagined him no one could claim that you know it was an hallucination christ ate with them with them he they touched him and he did all these things so would be infallible proof that he is alive. You know, if those events were not enough, Paul tells us that Christ also appeared to 500 people all at once. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6 it says after that, he was seen of a 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen. Asleep. You know, Paul tells us about an event where five hundred people all at once saw Christ. Now it's pretty hard to argue with evidence like that. It's infallible proof that Christ is alive. You know, the official position of the Jewish leaders in Christ's day was that he was his body was stolen. You know that his body had been stolen by the disciples. That was the lie that was spreading abroad. Go to Matthew 28. Just quickly, Matthew 28. <clears throat> Matthew 28, verse 11, it says, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed them the chief priests all that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. So, say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you so they took the money and did as they were taught and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews you see this is the lie they spread that the disciples stole the body of Christ and this lie spread throughout Israel this is the, the lie that was commonly reported as it says by the Jews so Christ therefore had sure that his disciples had infallible proof if they're going to win the the Jews to Christ need infallible proof that he's alive infallible proof to take with them not only to the nation of Israel but all the rest of the world you know ultimately there was a greater reason why Christ made sure they had these infallible proofs sure it was to combat the lies being told but more importantly Christ went to great lengths because of the importance of the resurrection to the church that's why he went to such great lengths to give them these infallible proofs because the resurrection matters The resurrection matters to our Christian faith. You see, we must have a resurrected Lord to be saved. There is no salvation if Christ be not risen. You know, Paul speaks extensively about this in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's just turn over and read just a few verses. 1 Corinthians 15. I know we've read this passage before. It's a wonderful passage on this truth. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12. It says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we have found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, faith is vain, are yet in your sins. Then they also which have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men miserable. Now Paul rightly points out, Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain. Our faith has no substance to it if Christ is still dead. If Christ be not risen, then we have no hope. You know, the hope for the believer is that Christ rose again and so we shall rise. That's our hope, isn't it? That as Christ rose from the grave, you and I will one day rise again. Or at least we'll be catched up before that day to glory. That is our hope in Christ. But if Christ didn't rise, then what hope do we have? None. What reason do we have to be here today? You see, the resurrection of our Lord is essential to our salvation. It's essential to the Christian faith. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, it tells us that it's essential to saving faith. Romans 10. Romans 10 verse 9, it says, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Saving faith involves you and I believing that Christ died for us, and also that he rose again. Resurrection is part of saving faith. And so it was vital that Christ gave disciples, as they went forth with the gospel message, infallible, so they weren't just, you know, laughed off the face of the earth. So they would be able to give substance to their message. You know, as we'll see when we go through the book of Acts, this message of the resurrection was the foundation of what they preached, it was at the heart of what they preached. The resurrection. Raised. Now, when we look at their ministry, we see that this is the emphasis. See so just a few verses this morning, just quickly. Run, Acts chapter one, verse twenty-two. Chapter one and verse twenty-two. It says, from the baptism of John, on the same day that he was taken up from, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection?" Now, this verse, of course, is talking about them choosing one to replace Judas as a disciple, one of the twelve. And what was one of the things they needed to be? A witness with them of the resurrection. Because that was one of the most important things, that they were able to witness to the truth, that Christ is alive. Chapter 2, verse 32, says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Again, they were witnesses of the resurrection. Chapter 3, verse 15, chapter 3 verse 15 it says and killed the prince of life whom god hath raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses in chapter 5 as well chapter 5 and verse 30 chapter 5 verse 30 says the god of our fathers raised up jesus whom he slew and hanged on a tree him hath god exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for repentance to israel and forgiveness of sins and we are his witnesses of these things. And so also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Time and time again, we see that they declare, We are his witnesses of the resurrection. You see, Christ went to such great lengths to give them infallible proof so that they could be witnesses, so that they could carry forth the truth. He is alive. Most people in Israel in that day knew that Jesus had been crucified. They knew he died on the cross. But what they didn't know was that Christ had risen again. So the disciples, they went forth with this glorious truth that he is alive. You know, even today as a church, as believers, you know, we have a responsibility of declaring this glorious truth, don't we? A responsibility of declaring the glorious truth that Christ is alive. And because he is alive, we have salvation through him. You know, we may not have been there with the disciples to see the infallible proof firsthand. But you and I have the infallible record of that truth. The infallible word. We have the record because of witness. Jesus Christ is alive. And we need to proclaim it for all to hear. It's still our responsibility as a church to be witnesses of his resurrection of the truth you see it is foundational to our faith we serve our risen saviour let's close in a word of prayer dear lord and heavenly father we so much for your word we thank you lord for this this book the book of acts lord which bridges the gap between the gospels and the epistles and lord I thank you for the the fact that before Christ left this earth he gave instructions under his disciples and lord one of those things was giving them infallible proofs that he is alive Lord, we thank you so much that we serve a risen Saviour. And Lord, we pray that as a church you would help us to boldly proclaim, to shout it from the housetops, Lord, that Christ is alive, and that salvation is possible through him. May you bless as we close this day. May we go forth singing your praises in Jesus' name.